That's the song Bad Tumor Stomp from the band King Charles's Head. You can find them over at kingcharlesshead.bandcamp.com. It's from their album Wet Sounds, and it appears on Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Thanks to the band, and thank you for downloading and listening to episode 189 of the podcast celebrating the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. I'm your writer, producer, host, Derek M. Cook. Now, this week on Monster Kid Radio, we've got somebody that I've been aware of for a while before I launched Monster Kid Radio. I've been aware of his work in the literary field when it comes to novels and fiction. I was reading his work before I launched Monster Kid Radio, and it's a thrill for me to have author Dwight Kemper on the show this week. Dwight is the man behind the novels Who Framed Boris Karloff, Ayla Lugosi in the House of Doom, and The Vampire's Tomb Mystery. But he's not just a writer, although that would really be enough because these books are great. He's not just a writer. He's got a lot in his bag of tricks. He's a monster kid who's got a lot going on, and he's going to be on the show this week. We're going to talk about his background, what got him into these types of movies, what made him a monster kid, his involvement with the upcoming movie Tales of Dracula, and so much more. So that's happening this week. We're also going to let you know about the next upcoming Monster Kid Radio Crash. It's happening on Wednesday, April 1st. This is not an April Fool's Day gag. You're just going to have to stay tuned to find out what movie we're crashing, where it's at, and if you're in the Portland area, how you can meet us Monster Kid Radio listeners in person. That'll be coming later, though. I'm eager to get to Dwight. Why don't we dive into part one of our conversation with Dwight Kemper right after this. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil.
Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. <laughs> Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! like to welcome to Monster Kid Radio, a man whose books that I've read for a while now, I've had his books on my bookshelf for years before I started Monster Kid Radio. I've been a fan of his, and to find out he was involved in the movie Tales of Dracula, I mean, it's just icing on the cake. Dwight Kemper, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for having me here. This is a real honor and a real treat for me. I mentioned your books. I'm talking about things like Bela Lugosi and the House of Doom, which is actually the first book that I read of yours. Well, you read the second book first. Okay, that works. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. You can read them in any order you want to. But... Well, it wasn't my fault. It was given to me as a Christmas gift, and you know, I, I read what I was given. But then, of course, I went back and read the first one and then the third one. What are the other two titles? The other two titles are Who Framed Boris Karloff and The Vampire's Tomb Mystery. And for some reason, everyone keeps knocking the mystery off at the end of it. But that's the actual full title, The Vampire's Tomb Mystery. Now, these are books that are set during the, well, Bela Lugosi's book, for example, is set during the production of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Bela Lugosi's actually one of the main characters of the story, as is 
Abbott and Costello and Glenn Strange is in there and Lon Chaney Jr. is in there. It's obvious you're a fan of this kind of cinema. Oh, yeah. I actually got uh, turned on to Universal Horror by my mother at the age of six. Wow. Yep. She was a big fan of Zachary and uh, horror movies. In fact, she, as a little girl, saw Frankenstein on the big screen. And actually saw it when they did the green-tinted version of it, when uh, Boris Karloff comes through the door for the first time. She told me that they tinted it green, which was, uh, looking back on it now, the advertising said, the color of horror. So she saw that back then, and she, I think she said she saw the unedited version where the little girl drowned, and she thought that was horrible. So actually, the very first horror film I ever saw was Frankenstein. And, of course, being the young age that I was, I kept forgetting that I had seen the film, so every time it was on again, it would be like I was watching it for the first time. So <laughs> now that I'm 57, I have a feeling that somewhere down the line I shall be experiencing that again. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Zachary Lee is a horror host, so you've had horror hosts in your background in your childhood. You had these yep. universal movies exposed to you at such a young age. And that's a parenting win. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, I've actually, I'm actually a uh, semi-regular on a horror host show on the uh, Dungeon of Dr. Dreck in Milford, Massachusetts. I play Uncle Mess, and I actually base that character on Boris Karloff in the thriller episode, The Incredible Dr. Marcuson. So I use talcum powder on me to make me look really dusty and I put some spider webs on me to make me look, you know, really decrepit and at first I affected a Karloffian accent but then it sort of it went from this to sort of this sort of an accent so it sort of evolved or devolved as, you're, as the case may be <laughs> uh, and now I'm on mouse pads and I'm on t-shirts and I'm on a refrigerator magnet and I make absolutely no money off of it. But I will someday, when my passing takes place, I shall be remembered fondly in stuff that will be found in landfills all over the world. So I mean, you say you're not making any money off of it, but that's pretty much what a modern horror host does, right? They don't make any money at all now, right? Yeah, no, he doesn't make any money off of it either. And <laughs> I've been in this, uh, three films of his now. In fact, you can chart my weight loss uh, if you watch all the Michael Leggy movies because I'm rather heavy in Evan Straw. And then I'm a little thinner in uh, Monochromia. And then in the latest one, The Brothers Dim, where I play a, a feline psychic named the Great Catsby, I'm at my absolute thinnest. <laughs> so you can, you can sort of watch me. Either get thinner or get fatter, depending on which way you watch the movies. Yeah, see, yeah. I'd probably end up watching the second one first, and then I'd be all thrown off again, just like I did with your book. So, <laughs> My, uh, yeah, uh, Great Catsby was a lot of fun to do. Uh, I had to, uh, well, I didn't have to. The, the script said that I was supposed to look like a cat because I was supposed to make my mustache look like whiskers, and I was supposed to paint my nose pink. <laughs> and I went a step farther than that. I grew my beard really, really long and my hair really, really long. And then I used this gel stuff, which is called hair glue, to comb out my beard to look like a cat's face and comb my hair up to look like cat's ears. 
And then I did the thing with the whiskers with my, uh, the, and I affected it most like this. And now we're going to call the spirit of death. <laughs> I also put on a purple outfit, which as it turns out was Michael Ledger's favorite color. And on top of that, in this purple suit and in this outfit and my hair and face made up like that, after we shot, I actually went to a very famous steakhouse over there. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know it looks strange, but I've just shot a movie, so they put me in a way in the back, but it seemed like every single serving person in the place came over to serve me just to see what I looked like, because one person would bring the water, and the next person would bring the rolls, and the next person would bring the entree. Finally, I said, you know, do you guys just want to come over here and just see me all at once? I mean, it's not like I'm shy or anything. (laughs) And this is something that you still get involved with? You still get involved with the Dr. Drek show? Yes. We usually arrange the filming of the movies and the TV show at the same time. It's usually sometime in the summer. I I shoot whatever scene that he has for me, because usually it's just like five pages of something in one scene. And then we go to his basement where he has his Dr. Drek dungeon studio set up, and then we will do the dungeon of Dr. Drek. And as a tribute to my mother, who introduced me to things and who was fans of Zachary, I actually included her in the show. I brought her ashes in my special vampire urn with me, and she now plays uh, Mona, the zombie cheerleader's great aunt Ashley. So it's my mother, and it's her great aunt Ashley, and 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 we've, we've we're going trick or treating together, you know. So um, so yes. And in the end credits, uh, he actually put uh, Gloria Kemper, nineteen twenty six, two thousand and eleven. <laughs> so I'm sure everybody thinks that's a joke, but no, that's, those were really her pre names on the set of the Dungeon of Doctor Drick. So we've come full circle. Wow. <laughs> Full circle, and you kind of threw me off a little. That's um. No, no, you didn't think I was actually going to talk about dead people. <laughs> uh, no, 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 it's fine. Uh, I bet she would have been honored to be involved in a horror hosted program. So actually, actually, it's done more dead than she ever did alive. She's kind of a homebody. <laughs> <laughs> so remember that, kids. If you stay home and you're alive, someday someone's going to tote your ashes around and say, "What did you miss?" Okay. So anyway. Um, <laughs> As you can probably tell, I don't deal with death the way most people do. <laughs> so, as far as being involved in front of the camera, you know, when I go to your website and I, I look at some of your history and things that you've been involved with, have you always been interested in performing? Yes. In fact, my mother took me to a acting coach when I was eight, I believe. Oh wow! And I completely confused the acting coach because we were supposed to ad lib things and we were supposed to have the other students figure out what it was we were doing. So I kept pantomiming that I was Dr. Smith on Lost in Space trying to change the course of the astrogator and the robot is trying to stop me and nobody knows what in the hell I'm doing. <laughs> because everybody else is going, I have a puppy, or I'm going to the park. You know, so, and then I turned and said, no, I'm Dr. Smith, I'm lost in space, and I'm trying to change the astrogator course, and the robot's trying to stop me, and it's like, what? <laughs> Who is this child? <laughs> yes. Who is this weirdo? Yeah, so. so 
gotten used to being accused of being a weirdo, so... <laughs> yeah, I think all of us monster kids get to deal with that, and they have, have gotten used to it, so... Yeah, and I've been a monster kid for a long time, too. I was playing uh, with uh, Aurora model kits and stuff. I had, like, seven Frankenstein models. <laughs> wow. Very recently, they actually made the thing look right. Because <laughs> I had a bunch of model kits that I never opened, and my ex-brother-in-law, or as I call him, my brother-outlaw, had a Dracula kit from the 1970s, one of the frightening lightning kits, which he had colored with magic marker and red glitter. Wow. So I had to strip all that. I bathed it in acetone. I got rid of all the glue, and I repainted it and put it back together, and now it looks pretty damn good. And if anyone's interested, they can go to my Facebook page and see all my model kits because I have it as my cover on my Facebook page. I could see a green-scented Frankenstein, but I'm having a hard time imagining the, the red and glittery Frankenstein's monster. Well, this was Dracula. The red oh, and sorry, glittery was, was, the, was the cape. Oh, okay. And Kathy, my ex, kept saying, my brother wouldn't use glitter. I said, look, honey, I can show you the glitter. It's still in the bag here. He used red glitter. <laughs> I don't know where he got it. don't know how he used it, but here it is. So, yeah, and I made the, the cape appropriately uh, very light gray inside rather than the red that everyone seems to think that it's supposed to be. I researched all the colors properly. Yeah. <laughs> I stumble across that on various message boards every once in a while. The argument between, you know, the red versus gray lining of the cape. I always thought it was gray. I don't know where the red came from. Uh, actually, it probably came from confusing it with uh, Christopher Lee's mm. Dracula, because his cape is red lined. That makes and sense. And I think probably Emma, who painted all the box covers, he made it red lining. So, and the model kit instructions say red. So. Somewhere along the line, somebody screwed up. But not many people know this, but do you know why Dracula has a high collar? I don't think I do. Because in the stage play, at one point, he disappears either through a vampire trap or through a stage flat hidden passage. Mm -hmm. And the cape has a wire arrangement around the shoulders so that when Van Helsing and Jonathan Harker grab him, they can grab the cape and the high collars so you don't see him ducking under, so it, it hides the top of his head. And then when the actor disappears, then they drop the cape and it looks like he's vanished. So that's actually hold over from the stage play, a little bit of magic that they used on the stage. That's why he continues to have a high collar to this day. Wow. Well, I, I'm learning stuff here. I should be taking notes. This is great. <laughs> Too bad you're not recording this or something. I know, right? If I could just go back and re-listen. <laughs> so it's that kind of trivia and these little bits of minutiae that I found peppered throughout the three novels that you've written. You know, little bits and little behind-the-scenes moments that made these three books just come alive to me. A lot of people complain that I put in too much information, but then again... I'm not dealing with people like you who are monster kids and who know all of this, but I'm mm -hmm. dealing with people who I have to explain who Boris Karloff is by saying, you know the guy who narrates how the Grinch stole Christmas? So that's Boris Karloff, and you should know who he is. So 
because, you know, it, I used to think it was common knowledge that he had a list and, you know. Oh, here's a funny story. James Whale, who is in Who Framed Bart's Cutoff. Mm-hmm. I had a friend of mine read my book, and he was wondering how, without giving anything away, how it was possible for people to drag an unconscious James Whale around easily. And I said, well, he's kind of thin, so it wouldn't be that hard. And he says, well, what, what, he's thin? I said, well, yes, why wouldn't you think he was thin? Because his name is Whale. And it's at that point that I went, oh, dear God. I didn't wow. make the name up. He's really called James Whale. He's okay, and that's when I had to start describing people, and I left nothing to chance for anybody because, you know, it's 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 sad. It's sad. I mean, it's, there are some people who don't even know who Bela Lugosi is for crying out loud. He says he's a vampire who doesn't sparkle. So <laughs> I don't want to know those people. <laughs> In fact, uh, one Halloween, my neighbor's son wanted to borrow a mask. So I let him borrow a mask, and I was actually writing Who Framed Boris Karloff at the time. And he says, well, who's Boris Karloff? And he was holding a Frankenstein monster mask in his hand. I said, that's Boris Karloff. You're holding his head. Wow. Yes, I get very defensive when people don't know these things. <laughs> well, no, these are, you know, monster kids aside, this is important. Uh, information. This is our cinematic history. So, I mean, just take all the monster out of it. It's still important cinema history. So, I I hear you, man, and I'm I'm shaking my head. Terrible podcasting, but I'm sitting here shaking my head and rolling my eyes, <laughs> listening to this somebody who doesn't know who Boris Karloff is trying to explain who Bela and James Whale. He must have been a large guy because that's ridiculous to me. I know, but yet that's what people think. They forget, first of all, that these are real people that I'm writing about in a fictional setting, and they think that I'm just making stuff up. Which, uh, by the way, uh, because of those little bits of minutia, Bela Lugosi and the House of Doom was probably the most thoroughly researched book that I had, thanks to, uh, well, the authors of Abbott and Costello in Hollywood. They were nice enough to all share their materials with me, uh, Bob Fermanick and Ron Palumbo. In fact, I went to Bob Fermanick's house, and he showed me all of this stuff, and I found out how much everything cost, and who was on the set of what day, who was late, and who was on time, and how long they had to wait for people to show up, and he had all of the outtakes, including the slate numbers, because it was very important for me to know what take, because the story starts with uh, the flood in that when Bela Lugosi is coming down the stairs and Bobby Barber is coming up behind him with a cloak and a Mr. Hyde mask and hat and screwing up the take. And I had to know what take that was, and it turned out that was the first take. So I thank them profusely, because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have known that the lake that they were shooting the climax at was Lubin Lake. I would have thought it was some other lake. But it was actually named after Harry Lubin, who was famous for the Francis the Talking Mule and Mr. Ed TV show. See, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I, I love reading your books because, I mean, it's a good story. It's a fun mystery, and I kind of like a good mystery story, you know, and it's got these characters that, this is Bela Lugosi, it's Costello running around solving crimes, but it's also got these tidbits, this information, you know, and I love that about these novels. Had you always interested in writing? Yes. Uh, when I was a child... I thought it would be smart if I were a child and I wrote children's books. Unfortunately, publishers did not agree with me. 
So <laughs> at the tender age of 11, I started collecting rejection slips. So, so I started rather young. And since I wasn't like one of these precocious little kids who have fathers and mothers who are already publishers or agents or things like that, I didn't have the opportunity to get published at that time. So people missed out on an opportunity to see my very first book, which I will mention here in case I ever decide to do something stupid like write it again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people to read my first stuff. I, I understand. <laughs> oh, I thought it was pretty good, although it was rather derivative. I, I didn't quite have a firm grasp on originality. <laughs> but uh, I improved with age. What was the reaction in the Monster Kid community and the fan community when you started releasing these novels? Uh, the reaction was very good. They were critically acclaimed. All three books were nominated for a Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Award. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that category is for both fiction and nonfiction, and I'm up against all of these nonfiction books, so the nonfiction books would always win. But, you know, I may not have a Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Award, but I have six powerlifting medals, and who cares? (laughs) (laughs) I I overcompensated by becoming incredibly strong at my age. So I started competing in uh, 100% raw powerlifting uh, two years ago, and uh, my best deadlift to date is 375 pounds. And now I'm sort of... I whittled myself down with swimming and stuff to 175, and now I'm 192 pounds of muscle. So you can actually see me powerlift on YouTube, so anyone who's interested. So I've done all sorts of things, mm-hmm. which is funny because I used to be very sickly as a child. I was sick all the time. <laughs> so now I'm healthier and stronger at the age of 57 than I was when I was supposedly at my peak at 18. So it's fun. <laughs> you know, when I look you up on the internet, when I look at Google or just go to your web page or your Facebook page, it definitely looks like you've got a lot of things going on all at once. You've got the powerlifting, you've got the writing, you've got the murder mystery in your background. It looks like you're a member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. There's all these different facets that make up what you do. And it's just fascinating to me because when people think about these people who love these classic monster movies, they have this image of the sickly kid who just sits around watching monster movies, doesn't have a lot of goal, a lot of outside activities, that sort of thing. But as I've produced the show and as I meet more and more monster kids and meet more and more fans in person, I'm just fascinated by the different walks of life we all come from, yet we all have this unifying love for the classic monster movies. Well, yeah, plus I, uh, in fact, I've got a murder mystery coming up at, uh, in, on May the 12th. It's a private show at uh, Traditions of the Glen here in, uh, in Johnson City. So I'm still doing those sorts of things. I've had several plays produced. Michael Leggy produced two of them. Uh, the Wizard of Oz Murders, and The Demise and Fall of Roman Empire. Uh, the Wizard of Oz Murders is fun because I did a lot of parody songs like, Punk for two, sort of facts, justice is my cause. That's why you're here on trial today in the merry old land of Oz. Crime be done, all of fun like a gift from Santa Claus. In every respect, I love to be checked in the merry old land of Oz. 
<laughs> I could sing the whole song, but you probably have a limited amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the other thing that I keep running into, too, is that fans of this kind of cinema, we're, we're all so creative and we have so many different things that we like to produce and create and write and perform. What do you think that is? Why do you think we Monster Kids are so, I don't want to just say artistic because that almost limits it, but we produce so much. What is it about the monster movies that inspire us to do this? It's not just being a monster kid. I think it's from the era that we came from. Okay. It, it's my theory that as technology takes over more and more of what our imaginations do, people become less and less creative. For instance, I think that people of the 1930s and 40s were more creative than people in the 50s, 60s, and 70s because they had radio and not television. So they had to actually use their imaginations to see stuff that was going on the radio. Now, in my case, I got a bit of that because before we had videotape, I would record off the TV all of my favorite shows. So I had the audio tracks, and I would have to imagine the TV show. Okay. So, so I got a bit of that. And also, we had things like thing makers, and we had things like model kits from Aurora. When we couldn't afford it, a toy, we would make one. You know, I mean, I made I made paper and cardboard versions of the Proteus and the Voyager from the Fantastic Voyage TV show and the movie way before anyone actually came up with a model kit for them. So nowadays, what do kids have? They have their iPad, they have their cell phones, they're on the internet all the time. They hardly do anything that's actually in the physical world. And I mean, I, I can be accused of doing that too because I've recently gotten a you know, an Android phone and an iPad and things like that. And I watch the damn things all the time, usually watching classic horror films on them. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, you know, the amount of creativity that we had as children, way more than what they had now. Plus, I wrote an article about this. We also had toys that could kill us. So we kind of <laughs> weeded out the week. I mean, you know, I mean, what is the thing maker? It's, it's a hot plate that you give children to play with. What is a wood-burning set? It is a soldering iron with different ticks on them. We had toys that could actually destroy a house if we really wanted to. I mean, back in the 50s, they had the, the U-238 Atomic Energy Lab, which included real radioactive isotopes, including gamma rays, for crying out loud, which I was actually given as a kid by somebody, by somebody my mom was doing. <laughs> so... That might explain my incredible strength today. I've been exposed to gamma radiation. <laughs> you know, I mean, we had stuff that either you learn to play with them safely or you would die. We were a tough lot. So say what you will. Plus, you know, getting back to the monster kid stuff, we were attracted to things that took a more romantic and noirish sort of vibe to it. Because they had two things. We either had science fiction or we had horror. And science fiction would be more colorful and more interesting. In fact, I have hanging on my walls here at home actual animation cells and backgrounds from my favorite TV show, Fantastic Voyage. So I actually own a piece of history. So that was the colorful side. And then the, the monsters who basically represented us children in one way or another. Frankenstein was always getting in trouble for just being clumsy and not knowing what things were and that a little girl and a daisy were not the two of the same things. 
We identified with those creatures. They weren't just knife-wielding maniacs wearing hockey masks. These were thinking, sensitive creatures that were played by really fine actors who put heart and soul into their parts. Boris Karloff could have taken what might have been what Bela Lugosi described as a scarecrow and turned it into a, uh, an impassioned and deeply warm, fully formed creature. And Bela Lugosi turned Dracula into a sex symbol and yet still scary, as opposed to today where they tried to put in more sexy than scary. And we also had TV shows like The Addams Family and The Munsters and, and all of that to keep us weird and keep us going. And I'm now even looking at the uh, life mask of Boris Karloff and George Reeves, my two favorite uh, actors, uh, which are hanging on my wall. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a little bit younger. I did not grow up in the era of typical monster kiddom. And, you know, so in some ways, I, I kind of wish I did, because I would have loved to have had firsthand experience with the Aurora models or seeing a horror host on television or watching the, the shock theater package on TV or reading famous monsters of film land, that sort of thing. I think we're fortunate now that if we go looking for it, we can find this media and still enjoy it today with the internet. Yeah, oh, we, were, we, we were lucky because our model kits were only a dollar 19 or something. Well, that's true too. <laughs> You are listening to the sound of a completely new screen experience. A startling new kind of excitement. As 20th Century Fox plunges you into the most incredible adventure that man could ever achieve. To make a motion picture that crosses a new frontier may seem impossible today. Outer space. The depths of the sea. The bowels of the earth, the past, the future, all have been subjects for the camera. But now, a film called Fantastic Voyage has broken through in an unexpected direction to create an adventure of astonishing suspense and beauty. One of the miracles of the universe. Its vital new story sweeps down from the sky. Then it drops the bottom out of the world you know and understand as a beleaguered nation desperate for survival launches a journey you can never erase from your memory. We need you for security purposes, Mr. Grant. They know they failed to kill Banish. Security thinks they'll try again, first chance they get. A woman has no place on a mission I of this kind. I insist on taking my technician. You'll take along who I assign. Don't tell me who I'm going to work with. Four men and a beautiful girl, off on a fantastic voyage, actually entering inside the human body, exploring an unknown universe, unknown dangers. They're tightening! I can't breathe! 24 seconds left. After that, you're in danger of attack. Come on. It's sheer suicide for all of us. You are there with them, sharing a breakthrough in motion pictures. You thought it was too late to discover something entirely new on the screen. Fantastic Voyage will be a stunning experience. 
for you are going where no man or camera has ventured before. And when you come out, you may never look at yourself in the same way again. with Dwight for a lot longer than I originally planned. And really, we could have kept going if I wasn't concerned about making everything fit into this week's episodes. You're going to have to come back here in a couple of days to hear the second part of my conversation with Dwight Kemper. Dwight, thank you for being part of the show. It was really cool for me, a real honor. So thank you for taking the time to make that happen. Now, before I get to part two of our conversation with Dwight in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio, tomorrow night, April 1st, is the next Monster Kid Radio Crash. Well, Monster Kid Radio Crash is where I show up at a movie theater, drive in somewhere showing a classic or maybe not so classic monster film, and I invite the listeners to come along. And if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, April 1st, Wednesday, 9 p.m. at the Joy Cinema, it's technically in Tigard, but go check them out over at thejoycinema.com. They are showing, as part of their Weird Wednesday series, the movie Island of the Doomed. You might also know it by its other title, Man-Eater of Hydra. This is something that I'm really excited to share with everybody. This is being brought to the Joy Cinema courtesy of Dorado Films, your home for European gold from the silver screen, and I'm going to be introducing the film. Since this is a Monster Kid Radio crash, I'm bringing my portable recorder along, which means you're going to get to hear about it here on the show if you can't join us in person. If you can join us in person, well, I'd love to put you on the show and just meet you. I love meeting listeners of Monster Kid Radio, and I love getting our listeners involved. During previous Monster Kid Radio crashes, I typically try to ask people what they thought of the movie, just kind of check in with folks, say hi, catch up, whatever, and that's what's going to happen on Wednesday, April 1st. I'm bringing my recorder along. We're going to crash the movie. We're going to chat it up. We're going to record a little bit for a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. If you're in the area, I'd love to see you. I'd love to meet you. I'm hard to miss. I'm going to be the guy wearing the Monster Kid Radio shirt 
Now, if you are a user of Facebook, there is an official event page. Just go look up Monster Kid Radio Crashes, Island of the Doomed. Hope to see you there. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Before we get out of here, I want to give everybody a heads up. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There are links to everything that we've got going on here on the show, like our Facebook group. You can click on that and get over to the group page, join the group, and get involved with conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners. We have a live 365 internet radio station that plays nothing but music and trailers from classic monster movies. It's ad-driven, but it's free. So go check that out. It's the kind of music that I listen to. I thought maybe you guys and gals would like to listen to it too. We also have a link to our songs page, which is where you're going to find every song that you've heard here on Monster Kid Radio, including the song that's playing this time around. So you can find every band that's ever appeared here on the show. I'm proud to say that every band that's appeared has given us permission to play their music here on the show. So if you are going to support them, buy their albums, or touch base with them, let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. We also have a link to our Amazon store where you can pick up books and movies, things that we've talked about here on the show, and our Patreon page. Now, this is where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show financially. Monster Kid Radio will always be free. In the future, there might be some minor ad support, but as of right now, the only way we get any kind of financial support is through our Patreon page. Patreon is a way for you to be a monthly supporter of Monster Kid Radio by pledging a certain dollar amount per month. Follow the link over at monsterkidradio.net or go to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. I have reworked the reward levels. So if you've been waiting to support Monster Kid Radio because I've been talking about redoing the rewards and that sort of thing, well, it's done. Now, I'm going to be adding some new milestones with some exciting things coming up that's going to be happening here within the next few weeks as well. Just to kind of give everybody a sneak preview, I'm going to add some milestones that will involve us, well, maybe commissioning some original arts or perhaps even adding a Monster Kid Radio original audio drama. So that might be happening in the future as well, if we can get to the right milestones over on Patreon. Of course, your support is appreciated. Just downloading the show and reviewing us on iTunes that, you know what, actually just listening to the show and giving me 30 to 45 minutes every other couple of days, that means the world to me. So thank you for listening to Monster Kid Radio. And thanks again to the band King Charles's Head for allowing us to play the song Bad Tumor Stump. Again, that's from the album What Sounds? And we're going to go out on that right after I remind everybody that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that does not apply to the song Bad Tumor Stomp. That belongs to King Charles's Head. It's on their album, What Sounds. Find them at kingcharleshead.bandcamp.com. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days when we have part two of our conversation with Dwight Kemper. 